This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I'll sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is an assistant professor in English at Valdosta State University. She has a PhD in rhetoric and composition and currently studies digital and interactive media. You can find her regularly writing for Ghouls Magazine with bylines at We Are Horror Zine, Critical Distance, Unwinnable Monthly, and Into the Spine. Beautiful welcomes to Dr. Emma Kostopoulos. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk today. I'm super excited to have you as well. Thank you so much for coming. So listeners, before we get into everything as you are used to by now, I do have a quick quote about today's film. And that quote is, the complexity of adverse emotions bound up with artistic beauty creates a zone where terror and horror, beauty and sublimity and ugliness can be difficult to distinguish. But that is why some beauty is truly terrible. I will reveal who said this a little later. But first, Emma, let's talk a bit about your relationship with horror. So... Uh, everybody has to know in every podcast, right? But uh, where, where did the bug start? How did you get into uh, studying things like this? Yeah. So, well, for, first of all, just a little aside, as I as I messaged you uh, earlier, I'm so delighted with the quote because I'm like, I know who said it. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but I'm so excited that you and I kind of had similar thinking for how today was going to go. That's going to that that. Oh, I love that. Uh, I love mm-hmm. it when a plan comes together. Oh, yeah. um, but I actually feel I don't know a little bit like because a lot of people have these relationships with horror where, you know, like they were raised with it and it's like, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome, I think, mm. because I wasn't raised on horror. Okay. Both of my parents, they can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, they, they absolutely like, like my father, you know, thinks that gore is like disgusting. And my mother, you know, like, chewed all her fingernails off while watching like Terminator, like that's her stress level. Um, And so I absolutely was not raised uh, with horror in the sense of it was on in my house when I was growing up. But kind of how I got into it was I remember being at a slumber party when I was like 10 or 11, I think. And, you know, my parents kind of kept me on a little bit of a tight leash, right? You know, like you weren't allowed to run around the neighborhood. And so when I finally got out and like started, you know, hanging out with people whose parents were maybe a little more loosey-goosey with stuff, right? that's when I kind of got a lot of the quintessential childhood experiences. And so what happened was we ended up staying up all night and we watched, um, we, we watched like whatever horror film was playing on like cable TV at the time. So I think I ended up watching like Bride of Chucky I, and I'd never seen Child's Play. I had no idea who that was. Okay. And then what really stuck with me was we watched the 2004, I think, Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake. Oh, cool. That, that's a 
wow. <laughs> yeah, like that was my that was my like origin story for horror was I watched that film when I was like 10 or 11 and I was just like, oh, that's that is cool. <laughs> why have I never <laughs> why have I never seen anything like this before? And then so really horror for me because it was an experience that I had with friends and then I also lived in this little tiny town where there was nothing to do on like a Friday night. Like we didn't have a mall. We didn't, you know, so everyone would just go to the movie theater and you just buy a ticket for whatever. And then you just movie hop all night. Oh yeah. 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 And so I would, I, I would end up seeing whatever like popcorn horror was playing in the theaters at that time. So for me, horror was always deeply tied to a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Horror was things that I did with, people who I cared about, right? Horror was something that I experienced with my friends. And that really took off uh, when I was in graduate school because I accidentally started an English graduate student apartment building. Like I moved in and then like four other people moved in the year later. Okay. Yeah. And all of us, I, I was interested in horror, but wasn't like super knowledgeable about it. And the person who lived in the apartment beneath me was super knowledgeable, had grown up with horror, had all this like encyclopedic knowledge. And so we just started doing like regular apartment events. Like we'd do horror brunch where we'd just find like the grossest, goriest thing that we could watch and we'd eat breakfast foods while we watched it. (laughs) Or we'd do uh, Terror Tuesday because there was a ter- the local Alamo Draft House in the Kansas City area where I went okay. to graduate school had a Terror Tuesday. And we'd go to that and watch these like cult deep cuts. And then in 2020, when, you know, movie theaters shut down, right? Mm-hmm. We just, we bought a projector and a screen and we started doing it in our backyard every oh, Tuesday. Cool. Um, yeah. So horror for me has always really been about sort of it's it's always deeply tied to this community that I get from horror and as I started you know getting more into the Kansas City film scene shout out to the Kansas City horror scene like Adrian and Horrorversary Greg and Genius and Nightmare Junkhead and the Screenland Armor that hosts Panic Fest like uh, shout out to the Casey horror scene. You guys are amazing. Woot woot. Yeah. So just kind of as I as I got more into it and as I started writing, because I had done some freelancing prior uh, in video games. Video games are kind of where my scholarly stuff started. Mm. Then I decided I wanted to kind of branch out and try writing about this horror thing that I also liked. And then, you know, that kind of took off a little bit. But yeah, and and the community has been so insanely welcoming. Like, I get shout shout people out, like Ryan and Tyler at We Are Horror, Danny, you for letting me on this Aww. podcast. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, you know, so it really is just, I, I love the scares. I love the gore. I love the tension. I love all of it. But also for me, horror is actually kind of warm and fuzzy because it's like what I do with my friends. Exactly. Yeah, that's so good. I love that. You hear from a lot of people, and myself included, I'm one of these these people that write about it a lot, how horror can be a really personal thing and has helped us through a lot of things. But I don't think that there's enough said about the community aspect outside of the quote unquote horror community as if there's just like one, <laughs> we're all, the, you know, this one big group of the same people when of course it's just Twitter 
and you have your friends is basically what that is. Or, and you also have your, your professional spheres as well, but the community aspect of it is very strong. And I mean, just look at the last drive in how strong of a community is built around that. And that community is very vocal about their connection with each other and the things that they're connecting about. But in horror in general, I feel that it's kind of just quietly done that, you know, hang out with friends, you watch movies, you know who your horror buddies are and stuff. But I like to hear from somebody to say like, well, for me, that's just what it is. It's just this communal thing. And then from there, your own sensibilities are what shape your views on what you're seeing and how you feel about things. That doesn't mean that it's always the same as everybody else, but you still share the fact that you love the fact that you get to do this together. And, uh, oh, of course, shout out to all those people that you mentioned as well. Yes. I mean, you, you also got a beauty of horror alum there. So good, good, good on there with Danny. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. All these have been very welcoming people. And I think that horror fans just, we sniff each other out and we know like, Hey, yeah, people don't get you either. Huh? Yeah. Lock <laughs> eyes across the room. Yeah. One of you. Yeah. One of you. Yeah. Uh, we're always looking for the weirdo out there. That's like, <laughs> Just looking at that advertisement in the magazine a little too long, or like, oh, you're looking for that DVD? Yeah. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> oh, excellent. And yeah, I have to, I feel the warm and fuzzy when you talk about it. I do like that a lot. Um, so I think we're nice and warmed up, getting chit chatty already. That's very good. So then I have to ask you I, we already know from the title, but I still love to ask and get you to introduce it. What film will we be discussing today? Today, we are talking about Suspiria, which again, I feel so lucky to be sort of the the one to get to do this because, you know, on a podcast about the beauty of horror, like to talk about something so iconic as the original Suspiria. Right. <laughs> it sounds like you've been quite a trailblazer in your own environment. So of course, you're going to be trailblazing here and knocking down doors and be like, okay, fine, I'll do it legendary status suspiria let's go everybody else seems to be afraid because they are i think there's high expectations for this movie <laughs> when i'm like the movie speaks for itself if if i'm gonna fail i'm gonna fail big that's <laughs> that's the motto there's no failure here you can't fail your own feelings Come on. <laughs> all right we i have a quick synopsis that roughly transcribes what happens in this film, which we'll get into the details here in a bit. Uh, but for anybody who has not seen either version of Suspiria, more specifically the 1977 Dario Argento version, here is what you can expect from it in as spoiler-free territory as I can do. On a dreary, rainy night, an American dancer by the name of Susie Banyan arrives at her new home in Germany. After flagging down a taxi, she spots a young woman running through the forest on the way to the lavish dance academy she is going to attend the following day. She never sees the girl again, because she's brutally murdered that very night. The girl, not Susie. From the very moment Susie enrolls in the academy, things seem very odd. The school's staff are incredibly odd, the students are paranoid, and there's a strange feeling of tension in the air. As more people either go missing or end up dying in bizarre fashion, Susie begins to suspect that the Academy is actually run by a coven of witches. Her investigations lead her through a fantastical and dark journey to uncover the truth of the horrors that keep befalling the student body of the Dance Academy. The question is, will she find the truth before it finds her first? Dun-dun-dun. Exactly. <laughs> so I would... 
I would ask, and I'm going to kind of half ask, why Suspiria? Even though I think anybody who knows knows. <laughs> yeah. Um, why Suspiria? Well, it's just because I think it. It sounds kind of trite to say that you can't really have a conversation about horror aesthetic without at some point like obliquely referencing at least. Mm-hmm. And like I know that uh, this film has come up on the podcast before when discussing yeah. other films. But I mean, things like and again, this is, you know, me talking perhaps a little bit out of turn because, you know, I don't necessarily have like the most encyclopedic knowledge of the genre as of yet there's you know there's there's gaps but just watching Suspiria uh, for the first time and then watching it again to kind of go over refresh for this podcast Mm -hmm. there's so much in it that you can see like oh so that's just where like that thing in horror comes from right like that's where this kind of tone or that's where this this trope you know tropes uh i'm 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 a rhetorician so i talk a lot about trope and genre and things like that you're in good company (laughs) (laughs) but i i just see so much of kind of it's it's a little bit like uh to to use a video game analogy you know like when you play the first doom you're like oh so this is how you know this is why video games are the way they are like so many 20 of years decades later because, you know, but at the time, Doom was a trailblazer. Like, Doom was the first mm-hmm. one that ever did what Doom did. Um, and so that's kind of how I feel a little bit about Suspiria, is that you, you know, you watch it. And if you've watched horror before, you can, like, things start clicking in your head where you're like, oh, so, you know, maybe this is where this comes from. Um, so it just, it, it feels foundational. Like, I'm not necessarily always in love with the idea of, like, an inscribed canon of things Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like canons can kind of leave out some of the most interesting stuff, but Suspiria is doing so many interesting things. And even all these decades later, now that, you know, some stuff that they do, you know, has been picked up and run with, with in other horror franchises. I mean, Suspiria is still, is still just doing, doing so many interesting things. There's a lot going on, and I think it's also an interesting example because not only is it foundational, as you mentioned, but it's also due to the time period that it was made. It's somewhere in the middle from us now to, say, like classic cinema. So there are a lot of things that came about because of, say, like Roger Corman pictures, that those those old Vincent Price movies or the old Hammer horror films in the 50s as well. Even some universal horror stuff is kind of thrown in here. You can see Dario Argento just like, this is all the shit I love and just kind of threw it at the screen. And But it's his way of telling that kind of a story and doing that thing. And so, you know, for instance, like the color palette, I would say most people, when they think of the color palette of this movie, they're thinking Suspiria. You're going to see greens. You're going to see reds. You're like, oh, it's like Suspiria then. Even though Blood and Black Lace did it about 10 years, maybe even 12 years beforehand, because Bava was the king of the Jalo film and started it all. Whereas Suspiria seems to have really beefed it up and made like, but this, this is my thing, you know? Yeah. It took a lot. It's kind of one of those, like, you know, like, like I don't want to say like other people walked so Argento could run with Suspiria, <laughs> but it it is really sort of picking up and kind of the crystallization 
of mm. a lot of Jallo things and a lot of, you know, kind of the supernatural horror of kind of the era that we see. It it just kind of takes those things and hones them into this just super tight, super polished package. Oh, yeah. That high fashion sentiment in there is just so it's basically as if Argento just looked at Bava and was like, eh, it looks nice and all, but hold, hold on. You know, he already kind of did it a little bit with deep red. And now he's like, no, 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 I got more. And then just went full fashion on this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Like I, um, I actually, I, I have a note here cause I, cause I, I, I took paper notes when I was watching Ooh. this film last night to refresh myself. And one of my notes is it's all just fabric and windows. It is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all just fabric and windows. Like those are the two, like I was obsessed uh, when I was watching, I was just absolutely enthralled with how in kind of the main foyer, the walls look like they're coated in crushed Royal blue velvet. Yes. You know, cause it was, it was even, it was even when things weren't fabric, like there were several parts where it was like, you know, Oh, this is the wallpaper or like, this mm -hmm. is just, you know, a painted surface like it was still all made to kind of you know look on, on camera through through the framing and the lighting it was all made to look sort of you know very pliable and very fabric like and very sort of tenuous right yeah i and i was just i i adored that right and and there's so many scenes of like susie like being draped in fabric or of like of people concealing themselves behind fabric or walking through fabric. And, and it's all very opulent fabrics, right? It's all very like rich, decadent stuff like brocades and damasks and like embroidered tool. And so, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's just absolutely wild sort of decadent sensibility coming in with the dance school. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense of texture to everything as well. Uh, I like that you brought up the glass because I felt throughout the film the motif of glass being used through it was not just windows. Of course, we also have the stained glass at the beginning of the film. Uh, lots of people crashing through different types of glass and windows and wine glasses. But I also noticed a keen, especially if you see it on anything like Blu-ray and up, I don't think you would probably see this too well on a, a lower transfer like VHS or something, but the focus on the lens itself, the, you could, there's some texture there that he plays with. So he's using fish eyes at very strategic moments, but, but there's one shot that was like, oh, you, you, <laughs> you little tricky guy. Uh, I say little, Dario Argento's a very, very tall man, but um he has the moment where you have Susie's going to sleep and I think her name is Sarah. Is Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. And she's about to get stalked and murdered. And when the lights turn green and she turns the light off in the bedroom, you're looking through the glass around the light bulb and it just diffuses the whole scene and makes it look like this fisheye lens just blurs out only in the middle of it where she's standing. So it kind of like targets Sarah and he uses glass like that throughout the film I just thought was genius. Yeah, I I I I noticed something similar in, in my own kind of rewatch because what what I was noticing was that he was he was making us 
think about a lot of the framing of the shots through mm-hmm. doing things like having, you know, like the the shot play through a window or like the shot is halfway up a balcony and like the camera's 20 feet back. And so you can like see this woman framed in the balcony. So like frames within the framing yes. of the camera. Um, and, and he's making us think really consciously about, you know, the framing and the staging and the setup. So like, uh, you know, like, like there's that old thing about, you know, like the Renaissance painting have the particular form that's like the spiral with the square. And, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, that's what he was doing is that he, I don't want to say that he like wanted to show off, but he wanted us to like, think about how every single frame and shot was just like, yeah, I, I put this in this corner for a reason, right? Yeah. Because it looks a particular way. And I want you to know that. And I want you to think about it. Oh, yes. From the moment the film starts, it's amazing how much manipulation there is of the sets to create a sense of like this whimsical fantasy world that's within your own reality so that you're kind of not briefed, but you're you're, you're kind of slowly drawn into it. And he warms you up a bit just to let you know, like this movie's not going to be a very straightforward, you know, hack and slash let's move on kind of movie we're really getting into something ethereal here and it starts all with just Susie's in the airport and it's the most mundane real looking place apart from the lights that's right. the lights are already your first cue like oh that's a very red waiting room that they're in and then all the lights on the signs are just a little overly uh, saturated for some reason but then every time the automatic door opens to let somebody out we get a little bit of the score and then when it closes, it's like the the rain brings in the score for the film. And it's not until she's actually outside that it hits and it just stays with you throughout the entire sequence. And I think it's just the best like tidal wave to drag you into this film. Yeah, that was actually something that I was like really because when I thought of Suspiria for this podcast, I thought of the visuals, right? I thought of mm-hmm. the lighting, I thought of the stained glass moment. Oh, yeah. right. I I mean, Sarah's death, I think, which I want to kind of get into in a little bit, because I think that mm-hmm. that is just absolutely the most stunning sequence, perhaps in the whole movie. Agreed. But when I first pitched this is like, hey, let's talk about Suspiria. I thought I was thinking about the visuals. But as I was rewatching it, what I was really struck by just kind of again and again and again, was this just absolutely like just take no prisoners <laughs> banana score that it was like Argento and Goblin, right? Goblin, Goblin. is the band. Yeah. yeah. It, it really kind of hit me um, because it, to, to bring it back to your little quote uh, from earlier. And it was actually something that I was really wanting to talk about was this concept, not just of the beautiful, but also of the sublime, uh-huh. which you know, the, in, in some aesthetic theories, um, the beautiful and the sublime are kind of like, opposed Uh where it's like you know you if you're beautiful you do this and you're aesthetically pleasing and you know but like the sublime has the ability to compel and to destroy very dramatic stuff um very extra the sublime (laughs) yeah it's yeah no the sublime the sublime is intensely extra but i actually don't like i don't think they're opposed at all i don't think the beautiful and the sublime are opposed in any meaningful sense 
Um, I think both can, can and do often coexist. But yeah, I was just absolutely struck with this kind of like overpowering, awe-inspiring, like this, I, I, Again, a, a bit a big thing of the sublime, which you know you probably know from your work in like cosmic horror and stuff, mm-hmm. is that like things are literally hard to describe, right? Yes. The reactions that you have to things are hard to describe, and that's the reaction that I had to this soundtrack, where it was just this really intense sort of like my lizard brain was going off a little bit, you know, in the back of my head. It was like <laughs> danger, danger, Will Robinson, um, yes. just this absolute gut punch of a sublime moment every time that every time that score crescendoed. It's such a great observation. I feel exactly the same way. I remember the first time I saw this film was on a bargain bin DVD somewhere in one of those like uh, classic horror sets where you have like 15 DVDs in it and none of them have any cover art. It's just all like mirror image kind of, you know, it's just like there is text on the disc. That's basically all you get out of it. And I hated Suspiria the first time I saw it just because it was not a good transfer. And it was just this really uh, irritating, obnoxious, loud score in a mono track. And it just it all sounded like it all blended together. And I was like, I can't follow. I have ADHD. So it was just like overwhelming me to the nth degree. And it wasn't until I watched it, I think, when I was really sick one day. I just really needed to watch something. And I remember that movie was visually really cool so i just wanted to like feverishly just sit and stare at the colors and that's when i started to pick up on the subtleties and then i got the blu-ray and it just melted my brain with how perfectly seamless everything is together with the visuals and the sounds and to this day the sounds still get you i think that's where most of the fear in the film comes from although we do have these giallo-esque murders and really violent Italian style, like, you know, situations. Uh, The gore is great, but the score, I had the pleasure of seeing this performed live a couple of years ago. Intense uh, jealousy. Oh, it was amazing. I was in Edinburgh for actually performing just a little improv show for the Fringe Festival there. And so I don't know if you're familiar with the Fringe. Uh, It's the name is ringing a bell, but Mm -hmm. how about, yeah, enlighten me. I will enlighten you. Uh, the Fringe Festival is a just citywide thing where they take all the venues that they can and then they turn other places into venues to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of performers and troops and all kinds of things to perform day in, day out. So no matter where you go, you're being hounded by performers on the streets with flyers. You've got little terrible pizzerias that have a basement and you've got a stand-up comedian downstairs that's like, the more famous you are, the shittier of a venue you're probably going to get because you want to. It's like you going back to your basics, but you you you're charging no money <laughs> when you would normally charge like 200 bucks to see your show. Or if you're just starting, you get to say that you've worked in the same venue as so and so and stuff like that. And in this case, they had this uh, I think it, it was a it's a community center, but it used to be like an old like orphanage. So it's still built kind of like a school and a firehouse kind of mixed together. And so they had some, you know, venue space there and Goblin were touring and it was just part of their normal tour. So it was the band touring and they're like, we're going to play the movie and we're going to treat it like a silent film. So we've cut the music track out of the film and we will play over it. So, I mean, it's not the original Goblin configuration. Of course, there are a few of the band members who are still there, uh, but, you know. 
Uh, so they do have some younger band members who are, you know, keeping up with the stamina of touring and stuff. But it was sick to just sit in this little chapel that they had in the back and watch this little cinema screen, very small one, and just hear, you know, the moments where you hear like the, like the, <sighs> throughout yeah. it. they just had these kind of pedals that they would click and they just started breathing into the microphones and you just heard of these echoes just coming throughout the entire room and they started playing the guitar and i tell you if you think it's intense just to watch it on your tv hearing it live with the guitar really like ding, 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 you're just like oh shit's about to go down we were getting so tense and into it and uh, that movie is something else if you have it cranked up to 11 with the sound it's an experience if ever they're touring in your area uh, don't blink just go just go yeah that is yeah i okay first of all i'm i'm speechless how jealous i am right now that's that's what that is um yeah i am i'm speechless with envy um in this moment italians they're nearby i'm I'm in europe so (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i am in the american south so but yeah um so but but that kind of leads you know this discussion of like the sound design in the sublime kind of leads me into this you know sort of bigger broader thought that i had about the film as a whole which kind of takes me all the way back to my like grad school days when I was just in a seminar on like the sublime in American mm-hmm. poetry where the, the role of the sublime has kind of changed right in, in the sense that, you know, like way back several hundred years ago when it was like the romantic poets and everybody was trying to capture the sublime, they were all trying to recreate the sublime as it existed in like nature. Right. Like I think everybody yes. was a, Everybody was obsessed with writing about Mont Blanc, like this one mountain. Like there's so many poems about this one mountain. And then kind of as we get into like the 20th century in art, people sort of stopped attempting to like capture the sublime that they saw in real life and sort of put that sublime on the page. And they started Mm. saying, no, we can just homebrew our own sublime experiences. We can we can take the art and make the art itself its own sublime thing. And that's really what I saw in just, you know, I mean, the the decadence of the fabric and the intention of the framing and the gut punch of the sound design. Like it was all coming together to sort of craft this intense and intensely beautiful, because again, they're not opposing concepts, but this intensely beautiful sublime experience like i think i just kind of sat slack jawed like the whole time that i was watching it and occasionally i like snap out of it and like write a little note down in my notebook (laughs) but yeah like it 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 is just a film that just kind of just hits you like a wrecking ball right if you're if you're watching it in in the right space with sort of you know perhaps the right technology right the right the right transfer and those kinds of things yeah but yeah, it it is a film that has great potential to just absolutely sideline you with just pure affect. And I think you made a great point with the wrecking ball analogy because something that so for those who are not familiar with concepts like the, the sublime, it may sound as if oh, well, all horror must have lots of the sublime in it. And I can tell you that's not true. There are plenty of horror movies out there that Fear is an aspect of the sublime, of course, but there's more to it than that. 
and it is grandiose. As we said, it's very extra. So this movie is, if ever there was one piece of art that could prove that beauty and the sublime are harmonious with each other, it's it's this one right here. It it shocks you to your core with some of the graphic images that it has, the concepts, the witchcraft, the score, as we've already mentioned, but also sound effects. Sound design is just like really screeching into your ears throughout most of it. But then the colors, as beautiful as they are, they're attacking you throughout the entire film. They're just, it's too much at some points, but yet you can't look away because you kind of revel in the excess of it all. So I like that you use that analogy with the wrecking ball, because I do feel like that's it. Basically, you know, you have to it's not just being afraid. It's this feeling of this. If it were closer to me, would destroy me. That is where we are with the sublime. It has to be massively threatening and some level, but you have just enough distance that you can go, wow, that's so dangerous. <laughs> and you're, you're it's like a lion in a cage. You're like, wow. If only it were out here, I'd be really scared. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like to get to, you know, to to give you your daily dose of Friedrich Nietzsche, which I don't know how many people need or want that in their lives, but it's like, <laughs> you know, you're you're staring into the abyss, but you're far enough away that the abyss is not quite yet staring back. Exactly. But you know it could. <laughs> you know it could. Yes. You see the little pupils in the darkness, but it doesn't quite see you, and you're like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, and this movie is just, it's just firing on all cylinders. But that's Argento style as well. You know, the, the man cannot make a subtle film if he tried, I think. <laughs> you know, um, and, 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 and sometimes what you need is just that giant gut punch of a thing, right? You know, yeah. like things, things that are subtle, things that are intricate, right? Like, I mean, you know, in in rhetoric in the work that I do, like, sure, those things are great and fun to pick apart. But, you know, that doesn't mean that kind of the big grandiose things are actually any less co complex or any less effective. But yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the, the colors are attacking you um, a, a couple, couple seconds ago, because there's actually there's one color that I just that really peculiar orangey red that he used for uh, it was used for all the blood. Um, mm -hmm. All the blood was the same orangey red color, but it was also the color of the wine when yep. Susie dumps it into the sink. And it's the color of Olga's nail polish in that like close up. Oh, I didn't notice. That. Um, yeah. It's the color of Olga's nail polish in the close up when they're like in her apartment in the opening scene. And I, I could not figure out that that's like a question. That's a sticking point for me. Because I couldn't figure out, I couldn't come up with like an answer or a justification for like why this particular, I mean, obviously I understood why there was blood, right? Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and you know, and, and the connection between like blood and wine, one could make several different symbolic mm -hmm. gestures there, right? You know, cross those. But like why this particular color kept, and I'm sure there's instances of it that I didn't catch, Right. But why this particular, this specific like shade of like orange, of like really orangey red, like it doesn't look particularly like actually blood like. No. Right. But why this one shade of orangey red just kept coming back. Like I loved it. It enthralled me, but I couldn't get a sense of the why of it. 
I'm really happy you brought this up. I don't have a clear answer for you, but you're reminding me of someone that has already been on the show. Uh, that would be uh, Dr. Chelsea Davis, who uh, was on the episode about the Love Witch. And she does research on what she calls poisonous colors. And she actually just had an article released through uh, Tor Nightfire, which was a review of some books. And she says the killer color in the domestic gothic. So she also talks about the yellow wallpaper and other colors and just how the way color is used either in literature or in film tends to convey something very specific, but how there are specific colors, those, those little shades that either signify danger or toxicity or decay. And therefore just we are programmed to find them very alluring and off-putting. And I would love to hear her thoughts on this with her research attached to that, because I'm sure she would be able to unpack that in a way that I would fail to right now. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm thinking of all probably the very baseline stuff you mentioned, you know, the, obviously blood and wine. You can think of a lot of religious motifs with that. I'm also thinking if like with fingernails, uh, vanity, sin, pride, things like this, uh, linking it to witchcraft as well. But I did notice that all the shades that were used for colors here, every single one of them had this kind of that's new kind of quality to it. Like how do you make green more than green? But Argento just was so meticulous with that color palette to make sure that everything felt wrong, I'd say. So that's what I, if on a simple note, I think it was just to give that sense of this is wrong. This is not okay. And it makes you have that same relationship with the colors that you do with the the music and the, and the sounds as well. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I'm just always, you know, because again, um, I'm, I'm a rhetorician, so I'm always looking. <laughs> I'm always looking for the goal. I'm always looking for the telos right. of things, right? <laughs> like, what what's the end game here of this? Right. I'm a dirty philosopher. We don't believe in end games. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you're you're right in that um, the aesthetic experience and the sublime in and of itself, right? I mean, there's. A, kind of a rhetorical hot take, I suppose, that the aesthetic can be its own end goal. Um, <laughs> little, Maybe I'm getting myself in some trouble with my colleagues, but... <laughs> Not do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Well, because, because I think that... I mean, I always think that the aesthetic, right, the aesthetic of a thing communicates certain beliefs, certain mm-hmm. values... Because, I mean, not just about, you know, like what the artist or the creator was intending, but, you know, how the audience responds, right? Like what the audience finds beautiful or sublime Mm -hmm. says things about the culture at the time. And, you know, so, yeah, so, so, so it isn't the, so, so it's really kind of more that the aesthetic experience just kind of rolls the rhetorical experience up in one where it's like, hey, check this thing out. It's saying something, but also it's going to smack you with some feelings that you maybe can't articulate super well. Yes. And I think that's one of the strongest points for this particular film as well. I think a lot of, I mean, obviously every piece of art, visual art made has what you just talked about, that, that relationship between the two. But I do feel that a lot of filmmakers try to do that but don't really 
know the techniques or maybe they're too focused on one thing than the other. So you can see them like, oh, I'm trying to have this relationship between like the messaging and my colors. I'm like, yeah, I see it. But it's like this movie is really just, as you said, it's smacking you around. It's really just like feel things go. And it has its agenda <laughs> and it moves and you follow it and it just keeps slashing out at you. And I think the main purpose of it, like any good horror movie really is just to make you feel what the characters are feeling, which is this, this intense distress and curiosity throughout the entire runtime. And whew, it does a good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it certainly, certainly gets it in one, but yeah, I just, I'm, I, I just like just go, going over my notes, like there's just so many tiny visual moments that it's like, I don't know how to, you know, like I, I'm having trouble kind of teasing things out, right. Mm-hmm. From like sort of the whole, from the holistic experience right. of the film, you know, I mean, cause there's stuff again, like the crushed blue velvet walls, like what's that about? I love that. Or right. the fact that the, the straight razor, right. That's used for violence yeah. is tortoise shell. It's a tortoise shell straight razor. And you get to see that. And it's a close up on look at this beautiful thing. That's going to be used to brutally murder someone in just a few <laughs> minutes. But I mean, really kind of, I, I guess the, the, the one thing that I keep coming back to in terms of just like, you know, Oh, good gravy is Sarah's spoiler. I get, but we're in spoiler territory. Oh, we're now. doing spoilers. Yeah. yeah. We're in spoiler territory now is, is Sarah's death sequence. Like uh, Sarah's death sequence, just like from the from the minute you mentioned it, from the minute that green light goes on in the back, and it kind of like illuminates part of her hair, uh-huh. and you know that like she's not alone, and there's someone else there. Like just uh, and and it's, and it's this weird, funky like I cu- I couldn't find the word to describe the green. I was like, it's kind of a Kelly green, but not really. Mm-hmm. It's not quite toxic either. Uh, yeah, it's right. A, yeah. Just this weird off green. It's just mm-hmm. off green. And then, you know, the sequence where she's escaping and she's like glass breaks. And there's that wonderful moment where you see the blue light flashing on and off, like just beyond yeah. the doorway. Like like the killer just has like a flashlight that he's just like messing with. Um, <laughs> and then finally, when she when she falls into that pit of like that thin curled wire and she just becomes trapped. Right. And, and the more she struggles, the, the more clear it is that like, like a, literally like a, you know, like a fly in a spider's web, mm-hmm. just that whole sequence is just, again, I'm finding it hard to articulate, but just the artistry of the craft of how engineered each shot and each moment of the tension where it's like, you know, Oh man, she's not alone. Oh no, there's someone trying to get through the door. Oh, there's a window. Maybe she'll get out. And then she gets up through the window and then she immediately falls into the pit of wire. And it's just like, ha, you had hope for half a second, but that's not how this movie works. <laughs> nope. So just the the perfect rise and fall of the tension so clearly tied to these really distinct visual moments. Yes. I also think that it's, Interesting how this film, if you compare it to other Argento films and other, you know, I want to say other Jala films, but I wouldn't classify this strictly as such just because of, you know, he got to play around with lights and stuff a lot more since they are just like hexes from witches and things. And 
what I find interesting though is that these death sequences, these murders, take their time. They really have a carefully crafted series of emotions that they're kind of guiding you through to where you go, huh? Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, please. Ah. And so it's like you, you ratchet it up very slowly. As you mentioned, the moment that green starts touching her, my eye immediately noticed like Susie's not green. Only Sarah's green. And then they do a shot from behind Sarah just to show the whole room is green, but Susie. So it's like, okay, so Susie's safe. Sarah, you've got to get out of there. And of course, she turns the light off. It just gets full green. That's that shot I mentioned with going through the light bulb. And yeah, she leaves, door opens, and lo and behold, as soon as the killer walks inside, the green disappears because Susie's safe. And I just, I was just enthralled with how much this was just her trying to open doors and running over here. And we don't see anything. We just hear the soundtrack just building up and building up and building up and building up and building up. And most of it's just kind of her scaring herself <laughs> until, you know, she does get into that pit. That pit was so interesting because I do believe they meant for that to be actual razor wire, but they just couldn't do, they could not find a way to do that safely. So they just right. like, uh, and a lot of the film is built that way too, that there are things that, you know, uh, I, I, for anybody who doesn't know, like if you watch it and you think, oh, it's a little, little childish, little infantile, this is by design. Everybody was supposed to be about 12 years old in this film. It was supposed to be a, a proper dance academy for young kids, but they realized that uh, the censors were never going to let them like tear some child's heart out and stab them at the beginning of the film. So they like, okay, we need to make them adults. But uh, Argento was like, I want to keep the script the way it was. So the dialogue's still very childish. They still like stick their tongues out at each other and act like 12 year old girls, even though they're 23. And I actually think that adds a lot to the film because it adds this, sort of vulnerability for all the characters as we're watching it. And it allows them to be also more of a blank slate. I find that kids in films tend to be pretty nice blank slates for the most part. If I mean, unless you respect your child, like I guess a little bit more, you can make a more complex character, <laughs> but in the seventies you would expect just, I, I have a curiosity and I'm going to go explore it now. But I agree with you that the way he's crafted all this together is just, you know, I'm having the same problem. Forming the words to express the feeling is very difficult, which is where we get into things like the sublime. Okay. I have, I think I have a little surprise for you. So who do you think the quote was from? So, oh, okay. So, so, so now you're going to tell me that I don't know who said it, which I love. You, uh, you kind of do. But I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious. Okay. Um, so when I saw the quote, when I heard the quote, again, I went back to that master seminar and I, mm. it's been a hot minute, but I was like, this, this sounds super Edmund Burke-y. <laughs> um, like Edmund Burke is the dude who talks about the beautiful and the sublime. Yeah. But now that you've said you have a surprise, it makes me feel like I'm super wrong. So You're tell not me super I'm super wrong. It is okay. a Burkean scholar. Ah. Burke is totally mentioned in the text that this is from. But this is actually the closing comments from an article called Terrible Beauties by Carolyn Korsmeyer. And she is 
it's a relatively recent article that came out too. I'd say like the last couple of years. But like I said, it, it is kind of an indirect paraphrasing of Burke. So when you mentioned it, it's like, okay, I see exactly where you're coming from here. But I was curious if if we were on the same page of just Burke or if you also knew about Korsmeyer's work as well. Um, it's again, the, the name is ringing, the name is ringing a bell. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm again, my, most of my scholarly work, like the, the articles that I read, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more into, uh, horror stuff. Thanks to the folks over at Horror Homeroom who gave me a very nice annotated bibliography to get into. Nice. But a, a lot of my background, right? Like the, the place where I could be like, aha, uh, is is video games and um, and interactive media nice? But yeah, so all right, I thought I thought I had it. I thought I thought I was the smart teacher's pet here. Oh, but no, now now I have this this great new name of the scholar to to go look up. Yeah, and like I said, you were you're not off at all. I totally see where you would think it was Burke himself because it is totally something Burke would say. <laughs> it is. It 100 yeah, it's 100%. it's it, it's like a Burke deep fake. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and her concept is similar to this because I think, you know, as we go along, we do sometimes lose the little tidbits that people have said because not everybody can remember everything and of course you have some scholars who are just going to say, "Well, so and so said this and so and so said that." And we're like as well, but you know, you're kind of like leaving parts out here. And so of course my sought to do with this article was to reignite that feeling that you were talking about how beauty and the sublime and fear, all these things are not opposed to each other. In fact, it would be ridiculous in her view, in my view as well to say that because how can you account for things that are just dreadfully terrible that are the most beautiful things you could ever encounter? So she goes into just discussing how disgusting things have a semblance of beauty. And again, to say that it doesn't work that way would be false because we, uh, she mentions a poet, I forget his name now, where he actually talks about the flea and how it sucks the blood in the most like poetic, beautiful way and makes this, this nasty thing seem really beautiful. Oh, I know this poem, but I also don't know who wrote it. Yeah, and I wish I had the article up right now so I could actually uh, mention that for, for uh, listeners at home. But I'm so enthralled with this because she's kind of the core of my research right now on cosmic horror and beauty. Because my formulation that I'm trying to put together for it is an offshoot that I would call unsettling beauty, which I would also apply to this. And that's when we have things that are so sublime, but also so beautiful that they unsettle us. So... I figured cosmic horror was a really good, just the cosmos in general is, is a really good place to apply this because if we look to the stars, and especially if you look at things like nebulae and uh, all of these different color schemes that show up in the gases of the universe, there's something terrifying about them. Yet the first thing I think we're going to have is, ooh, that's, really, ooh, that's beautiful. And you kind of get drawn into them, but the more you think about how vast and unflinching and old and how it's going to outlive you and it's just going to stay there we start to really realize the details of things and you see this a lot in cosmic horror that you have something that is just awe-inspiringly beautiful and then when you really think about the circumstances of how this thing is created what it means it, 
it starts to set in just how adverse to you it might actually be. And then, you know, that's where we can get a completely different set of emotions on top of that. Uh, Suspiria is definitely one of those movies for me. Just that I feel the the shot of the foyer at the beginning of the film. Oh, the pinks, the whites, the, the, the framing of it, the shapes. And there's just something about just take a screenshot of it. And it just feels like it's looming to me. The more I look at it, the more it's just kind of like looking at you, you know? I, I mean, y- yes, because, you know, my, again, I'm, I'm obsessed with that, with that crushed blue velvet in the dance hall. Right. And sort of all of those stage shots. And like my, my initial reaction was like, God, I want that for my, like, I want that in my, in my house. I want, like, I want that. But then like the more I think about that, I'm like, no, I really no. don't. <laughs> I don't because I know kind of what that portends, right? Right. What a foyer that looks like that portends. <laughs> um, yeah. Do not, do not make your foyer sinister. No. Keep them nice and casual, please. <laughs> and cushy. Um, were there any other, you mentioned that there are plenty of like, specific moments that kind of shot out to you, but we're, you know, there's so many to choose from. Is there anything on your list that you're like, well, let's quickly analyze and talk about this. Um, I mean, I guess I just have kind of not necessarily a specific moment, but I, but I guess we could kind of talk, talk about it through the lens of that, like glass ceiling moment. Okay. Because, because the whole glass ceiling moment or, and, and the sort of the thing leading up to it where, you know, there's, it's our first window smash and like, and, but her face is also like pressed up against the glass and it's mm-hmm. like clearly this very painful and also like just unpleasant looking thing. And then, you know, suddenly the, the back, the, the backdrop of the scene changes, right. Where she's no longer in this like nice coral room with paint on the walls, but she's in front of this like ugly metal grate as mm-hmm. she's getting stabbed again and again and again. Um, and I'm gesticulating with the stabbing. <laughs> this is an audio, this is an audio medium, so you can't see it, but I am gesticulating. <laughs> and um, doing a good job too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's finally that, you know, like moment where like she, her head shatters through the ceiling, um, just slightly off center, right? It isn't in the center right. of, of this glass. It is off center. So there's already that kind of like, asymmetry which already kind of like gets at our lizard brains a little bit uh and then there's the moment where where then the rest of the glass ceiling shatters and she falls and the the killer must have been a boy scout because that knot was just so artful (laughs) so perfect yeah in the way that it uh that had strung her up but i just um because i was because we've talked a lot about the sublime but i actually you know i saw something else in this film which was i saw a lot of and here's where I get to throw out another big scholarly term, um, but the grotesque. Yes, it comes back. Yes, Mikhail Bakhtin and his concept yes, of the grotesque. Bakhtin. Yes, Bakhtin. <laughs> um, I saw, and and Bakhtin is real big in rhetoric. Uh, everybody loves his narrative okay. theories. I can see why. Yes, I have read a whole ton of Bakhtin. I had a, the professor I worked under my first year was a big Bakhtin guy. Okay. Yeah, so there's all this kind of Bakhtin Bakhtinian grotesque going on in these just like really profane moments 
Uh-huh. And, and maybe this is kind of where that orangey red comes in with that, you know, the blood and the wine and the religious symbolism, because the grotesque is all about turning the sacred into the profane and, you know, and just kind of like turning these sort of beautiful images on their heads. Yeah. And so I, I just I just wanted to point out that um, that I also saw just tons and tons and tons of the grotesque in this film. And I and I love the grotesque because I think the grotesque is this super cool lens to think about things through because, you know, for so long, historically, and this is kind of where Bakhtin comes from with like Rabelais and his world, uh, the, the book he wrote, is that for so long, the grotesque, as I understand it, was the response of kind of the common man of the pleb, right? right? Against, yeah. you know, against the clergy and against the royalty, against those who held the sacred in great esteem, right? Commoners kind of came in with the grotesque and they said, no, we're going to do these really gross things and we're going to laugh about it and we're going to make you uncomfortable and we're going to turn everything on its head because this is how we get the power back. And so seeing the grotesque also, but now in this kind of like, I mean, you know, maybe it wasn't at the time, but like Suspiria has become, you know, this kind of cult film and like it's on all of these like best films, you know, best world cinema, most important films of the 20th century. Like it's on all of these lists. And so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of entered into some higher art echelon. I think the distinction between high art, low art is bunk, just so we're Uh clear. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of entered into, um, into these higher art echelons and to just see the grotesque so clearly on display there. I just, I don't really have a comment beyond like, I loved it. (laughs) I think it's great. (laughs) Yeah. There's a mad irony of the grotesque kind of like entering these very like upper class spheres of conversations in, in the types of media that are being produced because it is a very rich and dominant uh, aesthetic form, but it is one that because it came from a very commoners folky sort of sentiment that was kind of stomped down for just centuries of people just trying to be like, oh, all these childish low lives just walking about with their pagan looking rituals and oh he's walking with a dog's head and we're like yeah but that means it's because you're you're a dirty dog there uh mr priest so then they you know they were the butt of the joke they didn't quite appreciate it and i do love seeing things indeed like suspiria where the grotesque is like probably so if we're gonna look at this kind of like a sandwich or something you have your bread is the beauty of it. It's right there. It's the structure, the foundation of a lot of it. But then, you know, you have to have your your filling. So whether if you're vegetarian, you're probably going to put some cheese in there. If you're not vegetarian, maybe some ham. You know, that's going to be your sublime. That's what's going to be that strong taste that kind of like pops through. But, you know, it's dry without the grotesque. And the grotesque is the, you know, is your condiment that you're going to put on there. I think <laughs> uh, I love the idea and I think I think Bakhtin would love the idea of the grotesque right? as as probably he'd probably say it, yeah, it's mayonnaise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the the grotesque is mayonnaise. Absolutely. Uh, it's a bit of egg and vinegar, you know. And <laughs> 
I I actually did a course on the grotesque just last year around last November. And yeah, we talked a lot about Bakhtin and Noah Carroll also talked about the grotesque and how it's kind of like the mainstream these days that you can't escape it. Just most mainstream media is built on the grotesque. If, and granted, when he was writing, it was in the 80s. So we're talking movies like Beetlejuice. Tim Burton was taking over the world at that time. But you still see it today. I mean, just look at things like Game of Thrones. It's all over it with the different fantastical creatures, the the larger than life uh, set pieces, but also just seeing very modern looking actors and very old clothing and all this hybridization. And in Suspiria specifically, I'm so happy you brought it up because I didn't think of it. But the moment you mentioned it, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very strong. You know, like you said, the blood, the colors, but also things like uh, at the end of it, you have Sarah's body is a puppet for... Helena Marcos. The fact that Helena Marcos isn't even a person. She's just this kind of silver outline that's sitting on this bed. And so this absurdity just creates even more chaos to everything, which in turn intensifies your feeling of the sublime because you cannot figure out what it is you are watching at that moment. You just know it's threatening. And of course, in the same room with Helena Marcos, you have a literal bird with crystal plumage. You have all kinds of flowers, all kinds of wonderful, beautiful imagery. And I I love that scene specifically now, even more so now thinking of the grotesque because all three of them are just packed into one little five minute sequence. Also think of the characters too. They are ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. There's like another note that I had is that like, you know, a lot of the interactions feel like an old school stage pantomime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You you kind of feel like, what's over there? And the audience can kind of tell you, Susie, look behind you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to like put my little, my little Bakhtin end note in there where it's like, yes, the sublime. Also, the grotesque, right? Two two kind of tent poles of of our conversation, and also, I guess, of my current kind of understanding of a lot of what I find so compelling about um, a lot of horror. Which, again, you're right. Certainly, not all horror contains the sublime. Mm. I don't think that there's a one to one of like all horror is inherently sublime. No, I think right. it's um, that's that's that is not the case. But a lot of what I have been finding compelling, kind of across what I've been watching, reading, playing, right, has been those kind of sublime moments within horror. Because I think even though it isn't, horror isn't innately sublime, horror has so much potential for the sublime. It is a, it is a yes. rich ground for the sublime to blossom on. Oh, yes. I mean, because if, if horror was always in possession of the sublime, uh, we would just call it sublime cinema, probably, you know, they would probably, that's the term that's been around for so long that knowing how language is kind of formed through the genres, they've been pretty specific (laughs) about what they're trying to say things are. So uh, I totally agree that it, it, I like the breeding ground. Indeed. It, it, if ever there is a genre where the sublime is most likely to pop its head out, it's going to be horror. But you see it in other genres, of course. I mean, look at the Mission Impossible movies. Just seeing some of the stunts that Tom Cruise does just makes your heart just stop for a quick moment. Because you're like, if I was in that situation, <gasps> I would just be dead. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the sublime is also really present in a lot of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, the thing I'm going to name drop is like 2001, which I personally yeah. find terrifying. I think that's a terrifying movie. It is. I, yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey is scary as hell. But like even like the the three, because, you know, the, the overture at the beginning of 2001, where it's just mm-hmm. three, I think it's like three solid minutes of just silent black screen, but it's intentional. And it's just like, even just kind of the the anticipation and the moment of waiting, right? To get to like, when when's the movie going to start? Is this part of the movie? Am mm-hmm. I supposed to, is something wrong? Is something broken? Right? Like even just that moment. Yeah, no. So so the the sublime in film, it's a good time. You should it's seek it out. It's a good time. That's, a, that's another rich topic for a podcast as well. The sublime in media, you know, you could do so much with it. I'm so happy you brought up the grotesque. I'm also thinking about when we were saying how beauty and the sublime are not necessarily in opposition with each other. I think it's because of the grotesque that they kind of can't because it's firmly like right in the middle as this kind of like cushion between the two of them. It's like this annoying middle child that just really, it can really dumb down the sublime if it needs to, but it can also really take away from the beauty if it wants to suck that away too. So it's just kind of like spoiling the party for both sides, which is what gives it so much strength, but also makes the other two in a way more complementary to each other because of how the grotesque does so much to destabilize everything that it's around. And I love it for that. And I I can relate to this grotesque quite a lot. (laughs) We should, we should all strive to be a little grotesque in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So you heard it here. Just uh, live, live your grotesque lives and who cares? Wear, wear those mismatched socks and, you know, make people a little uncomfortable with the way you cut your spaghetti. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Since your main field of study is gaming and mm-hmm. I, I know a, 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 a bit about gaming, I, I game okay. sometimes. This is a little off topic, but I don't get the <laughs> opportunity to usually talk about another field very often here. So I can briefly touch on it. Like, would Do you also play a lot of horror games? I do. I do. Survival horror is one of my favorite genres. And it's also um, another really big point of community for me. Okay. Um, because I actually, what it is, is one of my closest friends, James. Hi, James. I don't know if you're going to listen to this, but hi, James. I'm talking Make about you. James, listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, the two of us actually, uh, prior to me moving across the country to start this new job, but the two of us would get together about every couple months or so, and we'd just sit on my couch, and we would trade the controller, and we'd play mm. uh, survival horror games together. And so I think we ended up playing like all the Silent Hills, mm. all the Amnesia games, a couple Resident Evils, because we're a little bit of Resident Evil snobs. Like we think there's good Resident Evils and bad Resident Evils. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but which ones are the good ones? That's kind of, that's a sticking point, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I adore survival horror. I'm currently reworking my way through the Dead Space franchise because it just dropped on Game Pass. Oh, did it? Oh. Yeah, it did. It dropped on Game Pass through EA Play. And so I'm currently playing my way through the Dead Space trilogy again. And it feels a little bit like I'm like back in my like childhood bedroom with like my PlayStation 3. Just the, the intense nostalgia of it. But yeah, I do. I play I play lots of survival horror and I've written about it a couple times. 
I've written about it for, I think, Unwinnable Monthly and uh, a piece that's coming out uh, in Into the Spine soon. Okay. But a lot of a lot of what I think about, again, is kind of the rhetoric, mm-hmm. the rhetoric of survival horror, because I am really interested in the rhetoric of interactive media, right? Because with a, with a thing like film or literature, right? It's that the, the creator crafts a statement and the audience takes it up and the audience can build on it and the audience can do whatever. But with something like a game, there's very much this kind of give and take, right? In Mm -hmm. that in order to access the next bit of content, you have to succeed at, you know, the first, like to get to the second level, you have to beat the first level. And so that means that you have to kind of master the content of the first level and the content and the rules of the game, right? The rules of a game communicate value to you because the people who make the game are going to tell you how to win the game based on what they think success is, right? Based on what they think is worthy of a win state. Yeah. And so survival horror, I find to be particularly fascinating because a lot of survival horror is typified by being really out of control, right? By yeah. being in a situation where you are not like, it. it is the opposite of doom, right? You aren't the doom marine <laughs> no. um, and you have infinite ammo and you're tough as nails and you can kill demons 20 times your size, right? It's like, no, you're you're a dude. Like the first no. Silent Hill with Harry Mason is probably the best example of this, where you're just a dude looking for his daughter. You don't you don't know where you are. You aren't trained in it, right? You don't have like military no, training, right? Which is kind of like hot take where I think Resident Evil goes a little bit off the rails is when they give Leon Kennedy like basically like black ops training. I'm like, mm. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but you're just a dude and you just pick up a gun and you have a radio and the radio makes funny noises when the evil creatures come near you. And so Harry Mason spends most of the game freaking out. And it makes perfect sense because you are in a position of just total powerlessness. And it's all about how you can overcome that, right? And how through kind of your own ingenuity and your ways of playing the game and sort of gaming the system, right? How you can overcome that powerlessness and how the game is stacked against you. So I find survival horror absolutely fascinating. It's one of my favorites as well. I I have a hard time playing it alone. I do love a communal gaming experience. I tend to be the one with the controls and have somebody read out a walkthrough because I am not dealing with that stress. <laughs> no, I don't want to be Harry Mason. I want to guide Harry Mason. <laughs> I'm a cutscene person. So uh, I'm very enthralled, and Silent Hill is probably one of the most special franchises for me just ever. And so I'm really happy that you brought that one up. Uh, but yeah, that powerlessness in, in survival horror and that interactivity is such a fascinating way to repackage the experience of a horror story so that normally we're used to empathizing with what we see on screen. Take Suspiria. You know, we can empathize with Susie's situation and go, well, I'm glad it's not me. Or, you know, maybe we can shout at the screen and hope that she listens to reason and does the things that we tell her to do. But when you are able to be Susie and walk through the school 
and actually have to deal with your friends slowly dying one by one. So all the information that you have in the story is just taken away from you. You do eventually just feel the pressure as it kind of like mounts up on you and you are just locked in a room with your final boss. And what do you have to do? I actually think Suspiria has a very survival horror game kind of structure to it with the way they reveal information. Cause you, especially with the silent Hill game, you kind of start with, what the fuck is this? And then it doesn't actually get clearer. You just kind of. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm at the boss now and I have to kill it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. So I think I understand that like this boss is like some version of a little girl, but also there's a satanic cult involved, which I now I'm seeing the parallels there, right? The clear Silent Hill Suspiria <laughs> parallels. Yeah. But yeah, no, absolutely. A, I think Suspiria definitely has sort of. I mean, you know, it's 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 definitely a chicken or egg, you know, kind of thing. Is that like mm-hmm. did did these ideas come first uh, in film and then they were picked up in video games? Which I think, you know, it's it's fair to say that a lot of survival horror video games owe a, a great debt to you know sort of horror cinema that came before. But yeah, I I love that you point out that it's like in a film, people can yell at the screen. Right. And say, no, don't go in the basement. Don't go in the basement. Are you stupid? Like, don't split up. You're going to die. But then in a video game, right, you're the character. Like in a film, you can yell at the idiot. Right. In a film, you can yell in a game. You are the idiot. And yet, usually you are quite an idiot. Yes. You're running around panicking. Yes. And, and the thing is, is that the game forces you to do like because I, you know, because I've had tons of situations in horror games where I'm like. Oh, I don't want to go through that door. Uh-huh. Oh, I don't want to go through that door. But you have to. You, you have, have to. to go through the door because that's how you progress in the game. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So so it's this really kind of odd, almost kind of an empathy building experience where after playing a bunch of survival horror, I am like far more sympathetic to, you know, <laughs> protagonists of popcorn slashers who I'm like, well, yeah, all right. You got to investigate the weird noise outside. Sure. Yeah. What are you going to do? You know, also, I, in the, I mean, I know in some cases, especially in slashers, of course, you do have the option of, well, what if you just leave and then you're gone and it's done and movie over because you did not do those things. But I like how in a movie like Suspiria, it could be the case where she goes, nah, and just like, no, nah, I don't need to go to the school. And then she goes home. But no, they do everything in their power that her whole path and journey is made linear by an outside force. And I think that's also why the feeling that we can get in survival horror works for us too. That is, you know, we know that a game is going to force you to do, it's always going to limit you in some capacity, even if it's an open world game, there's going to be a limitation of where you can go and what you can unlock now and what you need to do things. But in a survival horror game, it's super linear, not just to do it. I mean, the bad ones are. The bad ones are just like, I, all these doors are locked. Go through this one. Uh, but a game like Silent Hill usually has some sort of logical reason as to like, this has been bewitched or there's some weird thing that will hurt you if you touch this door. The world's being changed. Usually it's some sort of cultist that's like manipulating reality for you to make sure that you go where you need to go so they can do their ritual. So I love a movie that chooses to do those things because you get rid of the stupid protagonist and you start getting the strong, inquisitive person that you can empathize with 
who's just in a situation that they're doing what needs to be done, basically. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. It's all about, you know, um, because there's kind of that big conversation that's been going on since Scream in sort of horror media about kind of, you know, the meta Mm. game, right? Like the meta, like being meta and self-aware about things um, and how even now, like just being meta isn't really being meta in horror no. because everybody already knows the rules. And so if you're just like, Hey, look, I know the rules of the horror genre. We're like, yeah, so do we, so do we. Yeah. everybody knows it now. So just being meta isn't meta enough. And so you have to kind of go another layer of meta. Like what is it after metaphysics? Is it pataphysics? Right. Like you have to I, get like, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think like one of the Beatles was really into this idea of like pataphysics, which was beyond okay. metaphysics. And I just read it and I went, well, that seems bananas and then didn't look any further into it. But you have to kind of get even a little deeper into it and say, okay, so I know the rules of this. I know how this is supposed to work, but then what do I do with that? Right. Exactly. Yes. I've actually analyzed, I think, I'm trying to think of what it was. Oh, how I analyzed a few films recently. For instance, La Llorona, the 2020 film for Shudder. I saw it as a kind of a meta film, not just because it was talking about real world circumstances in a horror film, but also because I noticed the way it used horror tropes. It was almost as if this film was showing you that instead of giving you this laundry list that people who try to emulate Scream do, it just went, you know it's coming, and I'm not going to do it. And they just decided to do all of their tension and scares in a very new way to tell a different type of story. So instead of making it all about this evil ghost that's going to scare you and pop out like a jack-in-the-box throughout the whole film, and you know its motivations because some priest is going to tell you everything halfway through the film, blah, 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 blah. They decided, well, actually, it's a spirit that has a very calculated plan and is trying to do this and only specific people are being targeted, which meant that when you had scares, it was only with specific characters that it would actually get really scary or you just psyching yourself out, expecting things that were never going to happen to begin with. And when it finally kicks in, it's just like, Oh God, Oh God. You know, you're just like, you really have this, I'm happy it's happening to you and not to me because this is horrifying. And it made the film just explode with how ingenious a lot of it is because it was fresh. And I feel that that's the next step. You can make fresh cinema by going, okay, what is the meta? How do we do the meta story? And then how do I step forward from this? Otherwise you kind of get stuck in the trappings of telling everybody that you understand the genre that you're in when you could just show me that you understood it because you did it differently. Right. Like, um, yeah, kind of the, the heyday of explicit deconstruction, Mm -hmm. I think kind of has, has passed a little bit and that we, and that now a lot of the really interesting things that we're seeing are people being just kind of like, yeah, right. We all know how this works. But what if over here, which is actually something that I, uh, to, to, to plug a little future project, uh, <laughs> a, uh, I'm actually writing something about the Fear Street trilogy nice. for the Horror Homeroom 21st Century Slasher special issue. Wow. Yeah. No, it's it's going to be an amazing collection. I, I, I can already tell 
um, just based on kind of the the tweets I've seen in the Twitter sphere of people being like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be super cool. But yeah, so just kind of pivoting back around to not, you know, winking and nodding about being self-aware, but, you know, bringing it back around to being like, yes, we exist in this genre. Yes, there are expectations placed upon us, but let's be smart about how we use those expectations. Uh-huh. It's all, honestly, I don't know if people realize this, but it's almost an academic rigor that filmmakers do sometimes because in academia, you do the same thing. You could just get in a loop of going, well, so-and-so said a thing that I think is just <laughs> pedestrian, uh, our favorite word, right? And you just like, you straw man constantly to just burn them up and then walk through and say whatever. But it's like, okay, I get it. I get that you have a different feeling and opinion, but you'd never get to the point. So if you do the proper academic rigor, you can just map out what are the pillars of my argumentation right now. And now I'm either going to adhere to them or I'm going to deviate. That's it. I'm either classical or I'm not. And I love when filmmakers can give you little hints and nuggets just to let, if you're in the know, you know. I feel that Suspiria does it as well. Uh, I already mentioned how there are definite references to Blood and Black Lace and Bava's work. I also feel that there's a little game there with Fulci, since, you know, Fulci was known for the more supernatural, gross-out horror. And then, you know, he made Don't Torture a Duckling just to show, like, I can make a Jalo better than any of these quacks. And then Argento's like, here's my witch movie. Uh, I can do your thing too, bud. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but that's the thing. He didn't give me some sort of dissertation as to why he's a better director, anything like that. He just gave us Suspiria and said, I just made a witch movie. This is my version of it. And then by design or just by demonstration, that's the word I'm looking for. By demonstration, we get to see what his stance on that specific subgenre is because it's right there on celluloid for you to witness and to experience. Yeah. Uh, abs- I mean, you know, no, no comment, nothing to add. Just yes. Agreement. Hooray. Yay. Uh, you, Hooray. you win discourse. <laughs> you, you have won. Aww. You have won discourse today. Uh, I'm not trying to, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> win discourse. <laughs> oh, the pain, the shame. Yeah. Well, listen, you, you, you'll, you'll get like a little, a little gold plaque from Twitter in the mail in a few weeks. That's like you won discourse. <laughs> Hooray. I wish the rest of Twitter understood that. (laughs) (laughs) Why can they not all see that I am right? Well, but that's the problem too, right? Like everybody's trying to make that claim when really it's just do your thing. Yeah. That's how I feel. Absolutely. Like me, me being in my lane and you being in your lane, like we don't, I mean, we can, we can hang out and we can do cool stuff like this, but like, you know, there's no. Well, it's like Beauty and the Sublime. They complement each other as long as they stay out of each other's way. Absolutely. 100%. So, so, so I guess the, the two moral lessons you can take from this episode of Beauty Poor is one, live your grotesque life. And two, be nice on Twitter. Like, I guess just, you know, don't subtweet people. Um, yeah. <laughs> I get it sometimes if you need to like, you know, an event, whatever. But you know. listen, just, just screenshot and send it to a group chat. Like, just. Yeah. Keep it off the public timeline. That's a great, uh, you know what? There's some life advice for everybody right there. <laughs> go gossip with your friends, the people who are like-minded. Just go tell them, throw some shade, be done with it, vent a little bit. 
And if you really got some beef and you got a problem, why don't you just tell somebody to their face and you can have a, an adult conversation about it. Absolutely. <laughs> the thing Suspiria teaches us, right? Yeah, uh, like 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, how how much of that would have been resolved if like the first night when Susie got there, if Sarah over the intercom had just been like, listen, some messed up stuff is happening and you should go back to America. Like whole film. Exactly. Whole film resolved. Are you, are you a new student? You shouldn't be here. Done. Yeah. Communication. Yep. But then again, we wouldn't get a horror movie. So yeah, uh, yeah. But it's just people were trying so hard to make life a horror movie. It seems. Whew. <laughs> Listen. So so I mean, again, I'm I work in rhetoric and composition. So like, my whole deal is effective communication. But it's like most of art is based in like you know either obfuscating or like some sort of you know miscommunication. So, bah. <laughs> And that's what we're here for. Uh, it's what this podcast is also to help people do. Like, here's your lens where let's talk about the the, the the blurry opaqueness that people put in front of their art and try to unpack not necessarily intentions, but at least things that we can discern and, and, and the communication that's behind it as well and the feelings. Um, so, okay. Quick question for you to potentially wrap things up. If there was a survival horror game that you would say is like the Suspiria of survival horror mm. games, what would it be? Mm, that is hard. Um, You're welcome. No, but I have an answer. Yes. I do. I have an Soma. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. The game Soma, it's by a company Frictional, who also mm-hmm. did, uh, they got really big in the, early 2010s YouTube boom because like Markiplier Markiplier played Amnesia the Dark Descent and then a bunch of other Let's Players got on board with it and Amnesia the Dark Descent is terrifying. It is. It is. It is like bone gratingly God, like I I screamed out loud when I was playing Amnesia the Dark Descent. Um, But Soma, absolutely it is Soma. Not even necessarily for a lot of visual similarities because Soma is very... Soma's very dank aesthetically because, you know, it takes place in, if you're unfamiliar with Soma, it takes place in an underwater research facility. So there's like uh, lots of algae and everything is sort of, you know, like all the metal is rusty. And so it's very dank aesthetically and it's kind of dark and grungy. But I would say that it's the Suspiria of survival horror because of how Soma I guess also maybe spoilers for Soma. So if you wanted to play the game Soma and you were not anticipating it coming up in this podcast, pause now. Turn it off. (laughs) Pause now. The way that Soma deals with questions of mortality, Mm. because the whole thing is, the whole thing is that uh, the character that you're playing as is not actually a human person. He's a brain scan of a human person that has been put into a robot body and there's been an apocalyptic event. So he is like the last, like he's one of the last living human consciousnesses. Oh yeah. Um, And the whole point of the game is that he and another consciousness that is, uh, that was like in one of the system computers in this underwater research facility, they're trying to get on this arc 
where a bunch of other human consciousnesses have been stored in stasis and they're trying to get onto the Ark and then launch the Ark into space so that people and their like brain scans can live happily forever in paradise. <laughs> but the, the big fundamental twist of Soma is that you find out that your consciousness isn't transferred. Uh-huh. Your consciousness is copied. And so even when you make it onto the arc, you have to flip a coin. And are you going to be the version that ends up on the arc? Or are you going to be the version that's still stuck down here? (gasps) That's dark. It is. It is intensely dark. And like it, it really messed me up, but it, it's so it's again, just such a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Um, of things. So I think uh, just the way that it sort of, de- and and there's also a lot of grotesque because there's these disgusting algae robot monsters. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, just kind of for the, again, if we're talking about the sandwich, right, the sandwich of beautiful bread yes. and sublime, sublime filling and then grotesque condiments. Um, I'd say Soma has approximately the same distribution of things. Okay. Right. All right. I like that. So yeah. So the the Suspiria of Survival Horror is Soma. It is I think available for I don't know maybe twenty dollars maximum on like Steam and Xbox and PlayStation. So uh, definitely go check it out. I'm sorry that I spoiled it for you, but I promise it is every bit as moving. <laughs> uh, just playing through it. Well, that's the thing I find with video games too. I'm actually personally not very touchy about spoilers unless I really care about the franchise. Like if a new Silent Hill came out, I'd be like, tell me nothing. I don't even know what, I don't want to know what the first enemies are. But when it comes to most games, I find that the experience of playing them is so impactful that I can replay these games and still go like, man, I, I, I don't know how I'm feeling the exact same emotions again that I've already felt. You'd think I'd be done with these emotions by now. You can de- get desensitized by movies really easily sometimes. But with games, I just think that the scenarios themselves, if you're not speed running them and you're really letting it marinate and do what it's supposed to do, a good story is a good story and it's always going to hit you. So I'm looking forward to checking that out then. I, I, I'm very scared to play Soma. <laughs> Well, it is, um, you know, there's a, there's a, ver- uh, not, I'm firmly in camp play on easy mode if you wanna, okay. um, 100% because like I work, I'm busy, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I don't have like three hours to spend on like one boss fight, right? Yeah. So sometimes I play on easy and that's fine because I just want to play the game and I want to have fun. Um, but there is a version of Soma where it's still really tense and stressful, but uh, the enemies cannot actually kill you. Mm. So it's just kind of like a little like temporary knockout. Right. But I played it on the like, no, you can die difficulty. And uh, it was, it stuck with me. It has, it has really stuck with me. So I've seen some footage from it and like those creatures Oh, those things are intense. The way their eyes just kind of like glow and spark and everything. I'm, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there too, especially with, again, weird colors in that game. Mm-hmm. Things that are just not supposed to be the way they are. Yeah, it's like phosphorescence, but wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great closing point there. Phosphorescence, but wrong. If, we, if I did subtitles, that would be the subtitle of this episode. <laughs> I love that one so much. 
Well, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time with this conversation and I think we went places I don't think I've ever been able to go to before on this uh, podcast. And I think that we still stuck firmly within theme. So awesome. Thank you so much. All right. And now you can finally cross Suspiria off your bucket list for can. this podcast. It's it's done. I did it. Um, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the reboot in like five, six years when it's like, you know, the beauty of horror redux, uh-huh. someone else yes. can come in and. I'm sure uh-huh. somebody will plead and will, if they have a different take on it, we might do it. But uh, the only Suspiria left now is the 2018 version, I'm afraid. Which is also good. I haven't seen it. So whoever brings it in, you're going to, you know, you're going to be my first viewing of that one. Well, I think we can wrap up then. Thank you so much. Uh, This podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Road to Nowhere, hosted by R.C. Jara. White Ladies in Crisis, hosted by Jen Adams, Anatomy of a Scream's own Joe Lipset, and Gina Radcliffe, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. So, dear listeners, what are your thoughts on the OG Suspiria? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at BeautyHorrorPod via email at BeautyOfHorrorPod at gmail.com or in our newly formed community space on Discord. Be sure to check the Twitter page for the link to the server. It's completely free to join, so we would love to see you there. And as I have announced recently, the Beauty of Horror is taking advantage of the new tier membership features at Ko-Fi or Coffee, however you want to pronounce it. You can go to the website to see what all kinds of things we offer there, but every single tier does get access to a new monthly podcast called The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful, in which each month I will review a film that can be voted on by the different membership tiers. Basically, to break down a film from these particular judgments of taste that come from Emmanuel Kant, the good, the agreeable, and the beautiful. So I will rank them based on whether I find them to be one, two, or all three of those particular aspects. Uh, There's much more. So you can go to Ko-Fi. So that's ko-fi.com slash beautyhorrorpod for full details on the various options. Really excited to offer this membership subscription and I cannot wait to get the content out for everybody. I want to thank Emma again for sitting down with me to talk about just one of my favorite movies and I think uh, a movie that I love even more now. It's been elevated to an even higher degree. But where can everybody find you? Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Where can we find you on socials? Uh, yeah. So my Twitter is my last name, which is a little bit of a doozy because it's at Costopolis. So how you can find me is I have a website. Uh, it's nerd salad blog. So like word salad, but we're nerdy instead. So <laughs> nerdsaladblog.wordpress.com. Uh, and then there you can find links to my Twitter to uh, my own Ko-Fi or coffee or whatever, uh, to my itch.io page where I have some games that I've designed Uh and, you know, just all that good stuff. Um, And then also, I guess, in terms of things I'd like to plug, um, just keep listening to the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad because in the future, you may very well likely, because I'm turning in scripts at the end of this week, get to listen to my own limited run fictional horror podcast on this network. 
exciting. Yes. yes, you heard it here, everybody. You gotta keep your ears on Anatomy of a Scream. Oh, yay, colleagues! Yay! Well, I'm so happy to f- have you a part of the pod family. Excited to be here. Super excited that people are taking chances on my weird seat of my pants schemes. Um, but yeah, just for a little teaser, if the idea of human consciousnesses in robots during the apocalypse that we talked about in Soma is at all kind of interesting to you, you will want to listen to my podcast. I'm down. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Squad.